We are a peculiar people. As Christians in a, in a sea of civil religion, it's easy to hear many people say, I don't need to go to church. I'm not interested in, I don't really see the relevance. And we have been going through Ephesians with the purpose to really see how Christ is relevant in changing us from the inside out. And so what I want to do this morning is to go back and to think and put what we're talking about today in, in a perspective that you may not think about because if you think that Christianity is simply a set of rules, a moral philosophy that you've got to do, you're going to be living under a sense of pressure performance. And that's exactly the opposite of what this is all about. And so as I got into the sermon today, this week I've been thinking about uh, the, the topic and I thought, uh, I'm not sure I want to speak on this topic because I don't know the issue of, of lies and anger and abuse of speech really characterizes your life because most of you guys are pretty congenial and you clean up pretty good, you look good, you kind of look like normal people on the outside until something changes that and you become somebody you're not and you all need to eat Snickers. Well, this, uh, this sermon is going to be in four parts. I want to try to get through two. But what I want to look at is the purpose, the why we're doing this is we want to be Christ-centered people. We want to be followers of Christ. And if you're anywhere near Jesus Christ, you will not walk the same. Because Jesus Christ is not a moral philosophy. Jesus Christ is not some rule keeper or inspector to see how you're doing. He's the best friend you ever have. He'll come along and he'll prompt you. He'll poke you. He'll love you. But he'll do something to keep you in step with his spirit. And you'll love him. And you want to follow him. And so the purpose of our getting into the Bible is not to know the Bible. Wait a minute, that didn't sound right, did it? We don't study the Bible to become educated Christians. We study the Bible because we want to know the author and to know him well. And therefore, if we open the book and we don't meet Christ, we're not opening our heart to meet with Christ. And so the purpose here is to see him, to know him, and to know him well enough to say, I want to keep in step with him. And that's our purpose. As we go through, I want to review what I said last week uh, briefly, but the key takeaway is this. God is at work in the human heart. In Ephesians 2, uh, your heart is the workbench of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the takeaway here is, is you remember that Christ is helping you put off the old. The Spirit of God is helping you put on the new. And that's the takeaway. As we're going into, as we've been looking at last week, I mentioned last, about three weeks ago, there were four types of Christians. And those four types of Christians, depending upon which church environment or background that you come from, there tends to be the three I've talked about is the successful Christian. And you know that guy because he looks like he's got it all together. He's responsible, he's faithful, he's in the church, and he's doing, he seems to be, have the faith of a, of a Joshua, and he can attack mountains, and, and nothing, nothing worries this guy. So this successful Christian 
has the wherewithal to have the disciplines and pull it all off. He, he memorizes scripture. He's, he's fearless and he's confident. So he looks like he's got it all together. And so there are people who, like Paul, know the system and can do the system because they're not so flawed or they've got resources or they've got education or they've got something. But they don't seem to struggle much. And they look good. Jesus called them Pharisees, that they could pull it off. And, and Paul was that way. He said he was very successful, better than anybody else. He had commitment, he had drive, he had dedication. But one thing he didn't have was the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He could not love people. He was rule-bound, not relationship-bound. And yet successful people successful Christians are able to look like they've got it together. Then the other kind of Christians on the opposite side. <clears throat> he's not a successful Christian. Instead, he's a failing Christian. This failing Christian doesn't have the faith. He's got uh, anxiety that quickly is like a weeping willow in a 90 mile an hour wind. Look, oh, and he can't find Christ. No matter how, try, how hard he tries, he is not able to pull it off. And therefore, temptation gets him. And he's struggling. And he says, I can't go to that. I'm just not like the other people because I guess I just don't have what it takes. I, I don't know. I'm just something. I'm just not good enough. I've had people say to me, I, I don't want to be a Christian because I would fail. I can't keep it all up. I can't do all that you do. I just don't have it. And so you've got that extreme. And in between, there's a whole lot of people go to church who are struggling like crazy. Struggling because they can't figure it out either. But they're trying hard, but whatever they do doesn't seem to work to bring them about the peace or the joy or whatever they're supposed to have. They don't have it. So they go to the conferences and they get addicted to all the worshipful songs that try to get this spirit lifted so that they somehow have something. But they're struggling. They're really struggling. I, I can't deal with this temptation. I can't deal with these dark desires. I can't. And, and this is a thing that through me as a non-Christian... That's a pot of coffee. But uh, as a non-Christian, I thought you, you come to Christ because you're sinful. You step into the church and you can't sin again. You can't tell people that you're, you're really struggling with sin. And therefore, there's this pretense that you've got to act like things are going well, but the reality is you're being choked and you can't change. And so it goes on and on and on and on. And so I left you three weeks ago with that one. And we talked about putting off the flesh, and we talked about that in Sunday school. If you haven't been in Sunday school, you're missing some great conversations. So, that's another thing. So. But the, today we want to look at what Paul is trying to do with the Ephesians. And what Paul is saying is that there is a goal that the Spirit of God wants to do in your life, and that is to make you seasoned, sensitive, maturing Christians that are united in Christ and that the focus that you have that we all have as a body of believers is to be Christ-centered and that the way you relate to Christ is the way I can learn from you that you show me grace and you reflect Christ to me as we are all bound under the head I'm not the head of the church Jesus is this is not my church it's not your church it's his and therefore, as all members respond to him, if we all respond to him, the closer we respond to him, the closer we get together and we mature. And therefore, as we mature, use another word in there, we become more loving. 
lots of words you can use. You become more fruitful. You become more sensitized. But you become more liberated. But the word that Paul uses a lot, translated, is you become strong. You become solid. And not like C.S. Lewis would talk about those ghosts in heaven that they're superficial and there's a weight of glory that occupies your soul. And therefore, as Christians, we move into that, that mark, that distinguishing mark, that when the Spirit of God is upon His people, there are things that are definitely true of you and me if we're in step with the Spirit of God. And that's what these four or five things are going to be focused on. And we'll work on those. But last week, where did my balloon go? It's up there. We talked about how the law of the Spirit overrides the law of the flesh. And therefore, as gravity is a reality, so is the Spirit's reality stronger than this law. And therefore, the principles that we need to learn what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be obedient? What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be in step with Christ? Is your call to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we looked at last week, we put off the old, and now we're putting on the old. And so that's what Paul is trying to do with these Ephesians, to help the Ephesian pagan Gentile converts grow in their relationship with Christ and so now we come to this point where it really gets practical for you. The first four chapters so far is all that God has done in us. And so we kind of enjoyed all the looking at the fact that he's integrating us, he's, he's incorporating us, he's, he's bringing the church together as an institution, and now he's instructing us. And in his instruction, this is where you're either going to pay attention or you're going to be playing hooky. And so... If you're paying attention, and, and today they're going to get some interesting things, and so I'm going to stimulate you. You may want to throw a shoe at me because I'm going to start things. You say, but you didn't answer these things. So I want to stimulate you today with two of the four things that Paul is trying to get at. And he's really trying to get at, and that's what I'm saying to you. I expect you to learn these things, and I'm... I'm I'm not going to measure you or judge you by it, but, but please pay attention because these are, these are real. These are great things to learn. But the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So as a Christian, you are supposed to be free. You're supposed to be joyful. You're supposed to be close enough to Christ where that Spirit really is actively tangibly working in your life that you go, I know Christ. I know what he's doing in me. And I love it. Well, here's what he does. When he moves off with all these things from salvation, he's moving into sanctification. Notice this. Jack out of the box. The first thing he talks about for Christians is not the Great Commission, is not go feed the poor, is not addressing some social ills where the Spirit of God focus, focuses Paul to address the Gentiles, I thought, now, why did he do this? God, why did you start with this? And the first thing he talks about in order to become a loving, matured, and Spirit-filled Christian, notice the first thing he talks about is falsehood. 
falsehood. Falsehood. I mean, there are a lot of other issues. How many messages have you heard on falsehood? I haven't heard many. I mean, they've been around, they've been sprinkled like pepper and salt. But it's not really a focus. I mean, this is the focus. The first thing you deal with is falsehood. And then he goes into anger. And then he goes into stealing. Now, stealing, I thought I'd put it in there, but there are four words and three are better at the title. Lies. Uh, falsehood, lies, anger, and abuse of speech. But stealing's in there, and speech. Let's look at these quickly. The reason why he says this is because Paul, like the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament writer, understood that there's something missing in the human heart. There's something wrong, and the pattern that's inside of us, as Jeremiah, is that there is a deception gene. The heart is deceitful. Now, when I became a Christian, this particular passage haunted me. And my Christian brothers would tease me. Because it says, Dehart, you're deceitful above all things. And I, ha- I mean, I go to the Bible study, oh, deceitful Dehart is here. Deceited. Well, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond care. Who can understand it? That's what I was hit with as a young Christian. <laughs> but then I had to go find the verse in Psalms that says, God looks upon the heart of all men. So I, I dealt with that. But he says that there's something about the heart, that's, there's a tendency for deception. Now that's an interesting phrase as he gets into, but what Paul says, if you are a Gentile and you step into the body of Christ, stop acting like Gentiles. Stop this deception. You can no longer bring into the church what is your former pattern of life, which was ignorance, which was hardness, which was a resistance to the Spirit. So stop acting like you did before, and there's going to be a whole new learning. But this idea of falsehood, that there's something about the human heart that will not bring the truth, but instead offer lies, or fake news, or misrepresentation and bias. The idea that that we can take something and present it in a way that will give a half-truth enough to get you believing in a pseudo-lie, pseudo-truth. But if you never ask, it gets by. If you say the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, you begin to believe half-truths. And that is the thing that the Spirit of God goes after first. He says, no, falsehood is not going to be characterized as what's going on in your soul. The word sin... When the Bible talks about sin, it talks about this word harmartia. And it's an interesting, we've heard this, if you've heard this, it's called missing the mark. We all hear that, but when you break down this word, ha, is not a joke. Ha means apart from. And martia means the mark, okay, like the target, but it means the standard. It means the design. It means the goal. It means you're missing the very purpose. You're missing truth. You're missing love. You're missing, you're missing. And you're substituting something. And in your substitution, you've separated yourself. And that falsehood says, it must be put off. 
you must get rid of these substitutions. Put off the falsehood, it says, and you speak truthfully. Speak what is true in your heart because you do it together. And the reasons why Paul talks about this is not because it's a moral philosophy. He doesn't say this is an ethical issue, though they are moral and ethical issues. The reason why Paul says to the Gentile Ephesians coming into the church, he says, hey, relationships don't work that way. We don't do that here. The way we have relationships is different in the spirit. And therefore, he says, we are members of one another. And so Paul says, if you're going to look at these relationships, you can't bring in falsehood. You can't bring in half-truths. Because relationships can't bear it. And we'll get into that. But if you, you understand that falsehood uh, messes with the mark of friendships. Because you can't go very deep when you can't trust people who are lying. You can't go very deep when there's deception. Falsehood does not allow for the truth. Falsehood will keep truth at bay, but falsehood is in control. Make no mistake, that which is governing that soul is not the Spirit of God. And therefore, when it distances itself from the true self, then you see where falsehood alienates not other people, but it deceives your own soul. You become somebody you think you are, but you're not that person. But you think you are that person, therefore you follow that lie. And it's no longer now, you don't see yourself the way God sees you, as accepted. You see yourself as a player in a game of relationships. And so you had to figure out how to have these relationships. And that's a stress that God says, no, no. No, no, we don't do that here. That's not what I want for you. And therefore, harmartia, it's a Greek word that Aristotle would use, but it's particularly used as the tragic error when the hero makes the mistake and falls. It's that Achilles heel that will always knock the hero off the pedestal. And Jesus would say, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Truly, truly. Truly, verily, verily. 78 times. And when Jesus would talk about truth, he wasn't talking philosophically. He wasn't talking intellectually. He wasn't talking ethically. He was talking relationally. I am truth. I am true to the core. Which of you accuses me of sin? I can't. The holiness of God sets your spirit free when you walk in truth. And that's why Jesus said, if you're my disciples, the truth will set you free if you walk in truth. Falsehood will alienate, truth will liberate, and therefore you have Jesus would always say, and he said this, and you know this, right when Andrew went to get Nathaniel under the tree, when Jesus was approaching them, what did Jesus say? Ah, here is a true Israelite. Nathaniel meditating on the Word of God. Here's a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, is the King James word, deceit. This is an honest man. He's honest. He's not a man of falsehood. He's honest. And so C.S. Lewis wrote that book, Till We Have Faces. Until their face is honest and broken down that you are, all that you are, 
good and bad, you bring yourself to Christ honestly and humbly, you find yourself facing things you don't like. But in your facing, if you're honest with God, it also means you're being honest with yourself. And so when I think about being honest with God, I realize it's really being about honest with myself. But the spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth about who you are and how God thinks about you. You see, God has made up his mind. He wants you. He loves you. He knows you. Even though you don't love, want, or know him, he pursues us in truth to liberate us from all of our deception. That's good news. And so Socrates then would say, if you don't examine your life, it's not worth living. To put it in another way, uh, a false life is not worth living. And therefore, the thing that Paul wanted to say is, you don't get to choose what is true. You don't change the truth. But your job, my job, is we choose how we can respond to the truth. And therefore, when we get to those ugly points, and the truth of the flesh, where we really fail to love people, hurt people, damage people, broken people, we come confessing and we say the same thing as God says about us, which is true. It says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to do what? One, to forgive us of our sins, but to change the falsehood and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does he do that? By bringing in the truth, by bringing in grace. And truth and grace, truth and grace were realized, became my reality, that I live in a world where I see as God sees with truth, but not just truth, it's truth and grace. Because if you have truth without grace, you're going to lie because you can't handle the truth. That sounds like a film. But you have grace. As ugly as it gets, God still moves towards us lovingly. Isn't that great? So put off the falsehood, he says. That's the mark. And so you can say goodbye because the past no longer defines you. Put off the falsehood. And move towards the truth. Now that's the first part. The second is the issue of anger. Again, falsehood's the first thing. I thought, huh, were the Ephesian Christians liars? All Cretans were liars. And certain cultures uh, emphasize lies, which is another pot of coffee I won't get into. But the idea that you're in a group of people that are going to influence the way you relate to those people, falsehood's not one. Truth is for us. Anger, there are groups that are angry groups. We've seen that last week in Pittsburgh. But the idea that anger is an issue, that Paul says, no, we don't do that here. Now, anger, is, this, is a, this is a big, big topic, and I've got 10 minutes to go through it. I want to try to go through it real quick, so buckle your seatbelts. You will want to hear this, because what the Spirit of God does and this, is, this was about three years ago when I ran into prison. I ran into this and God did this. And I thought, this, I'm going to remember this. Well, this is good stuff. If falsehood is the alienation of the soul that misses the mark or the design of what it means to be righteous and true, anger is the agitation of the soul. Anger is agitation. It's an emotional passion that comes out 
so quickly that breaks the left brain logic into the right brain emotion and emotion comes out and anger anger is not of the spirit in that uncontrolled emotion now pay attention because this is to be your new mark how we deal with anger but if anger is the agitation of the soul anger arms itself with an argument and anger will always escalate into conflict and war simply defined and there's another seminar I'd like to get on on unhealthy emotions unhealthy emotions like anxiety that's not the mark depression is not the mark and anger is not the mark but anger is simple to understand simple 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 Anger is a blocked goal. Memorize that. Write that down. Anger is a blocked goal. If I got to get to Indianapolis and Newcastle and I've got a limited amount of time to see Sandy and I'm driving down the road and there's a storm and there's construction and then there's semis and I'm getting, I'm losing time, something is inside of me getting in. If I drink five pots of coffee and you come and say, Jerry, I've got a question for you and I've got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Anything that blocks your goal will create a tension in you. And depending upon the level of the block and how strong it is, you will take action in responding to those things that are blocking your goal. It's a simple question. Fill in the blank and write this down. I would be happy if, and you fill in the blank. What is the blank is the block. If this person would only pay attention to me. They're not paying attention to me. I would be happy if those caravans from South America would blank. And you get all kinds of answers. I would be happy if... I washed my car for two hours, waxed it, cleaned it, carpet, windows, everything was two hours. We were at a training program and Sandy says, can I borrow the car to go to the grocery? I said, yeah. It happened to rain that morning and so when she came back there were mud puddles that she couldn't miss and she brought the new car in with some of the mud flaps just kind of filled with mud. And I'm thinking, I'd be happy if... mm, Sandy never drove through mud puddles. But I thought, how unrealistic is that? Because I can't control mud puddles. I can't control Sandy. But I got mad at the wrong thing. It's silly when you think, what do you really expect to happen? And when you put pressure on things, you're walking in a world that's, I want this to happen. Well, anger is a blocked goal. There is an eagle that looked on the ground, it was just flying around, it was making this dive attack. And so as it saw this animal, it went after it with everything, the laser focus, and grabbed this little guy. And as that bold, proud eagle flew up with his prey, all of a sudden his limbs, his arms went limp and fell right to the ground. Running up to see that, this one guy said, the chest of that eagle had been ripped out. 
because that weasel wasn't dead and clawed, clawed that eagle until both were killed. Anger will throw you to the ground and destroy you. Therefore, without the Spirit of God giving you wisdom to deal with anger, your anger is going to destroy your soul. And that's why Paul says, put it off, Gentiles. Now, the three common responses to anger. I don't know about you. Which is you? Some people, when they get anger, act that out. Slam doors, throw plates, cups, anything. Be careful of knives. But they act out because it comes out of their body. They're physically going to say, and you hear this because it's a physical expression. Some people act it out. Some people shut it out. Nope. Are you angry? Nope. And they, they go down. They, uh, they will not let it come out. And they avoid. They walk away and become silent. And they bury anger. They either talk it out, shut it out, or, or act it out, shut it out. But then people talk it out. And they talk and 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 talk. Because anger never stops talking. You don't hear me. And I don't know why this is. Can you explain this to me? That if I am angry at you, or a parent gets angry at his kid, why is it that if I am angry, and if I raise my voice, and I get more angry, the intensity of my voice is going to make it feel better, because I'm going to get angry, and I get... Why do we do that? Because the intensity doesn't change the issue. But it changes the level of emotion. And therefore we bully people by an emotional anger to get control. Amazing. Well, Paul says, now notice this. Should Christians get angry? Paul says yes and no. But he says, in your anger do not sin. Okay, I've got a couple minutes. In your anger, do not sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not grieve or do not give the devil an opportunity, a foothold. You see, if anger is not treated and dealt with with a spiritual way, it will grow and Satan will take advantage to destroy relationships. And therefore, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer because you're killing the relationship. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. If anger isn't dealt with, it turns into, and this is the last point, it turns into a demon dance. And a demon dance is my phrase, and you'll hear it again later on. If you are in a demon dance where anger has entered in and there's emotional breakdown, you cannot get out of it. When two people are in conflict and they are in a demon dance of emotion, they cannot get out of it. And what happens is the relationship is broken. And no matter what you say, no matter what you say or no matter what you do, it's a broken relationship at that point. And if this person tries to get back, this person will attack because there's skepticism. There's cynicism. What are you trying to do? You're trying to win your... No, no, no. And if you don't deal with the emotional level of anger, you'll never get healing. Never. Because you'll try to 
weasel or manipulate or argue or but that's not the way relationships work. We don't do that here. And therefore what Paul says, we've got to turn away. And as, he, as Jesus would deal with this anger, what Jesus did with, and this is the part in Mark 3. Notice this, and we're going to close here and pick it up next week. This is a wonderful lesson that you will want to meditate on. Jesus got angry. You can't get angry, but not for selfish purposes. And that's what you have to figure out. Are you angry because you're not getting what you want? You're not getting your way? You're not, this isn't going right? You're upset and you're agitated? Paul says, no, no. When the Pharisees were at the temple, and he came in, and the man with the withered hand, you know the story. Jesus looked at that man and had compassion on him. He says, if you're willing, you can touch me. He said, yeah. And he, and he, but as he reached out, Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, my. And he says he saw the Pharisees and angry, it says he was angry as he looked at them, but he says his anger turned to grief. When anger turns to grief, it's the mark of the Spirit shifting your focus off of your benefit to what God is doing or wants to do. And God always wanted to bring about healing, but the Pharisees were blocking and judging the healing by saying, who are you? Who are you? you can't do it. This is the Sabbath. And they began to complain. And Jesus looked at people who, who were just muscling in on, on, on God's blessing as they were blocking the blessings. Jesus didn't get angry at them. He got angry at the sin that was destroying the blessing of God. And that's the righteous anger. Anything that blocks the blessing of God, you should get angry. Anything that blocks personal goals, you can check that out the door. But Paul is saying to us, stop being false. We don't do that here. Stop being self-centered in your anger. We don't do that here. There's a truth and there's a blessing that heals. We do that here as a couple other things. We're going to stop here because this gets better. And so as we come into this growth part, you begin to see you've got to put off and then you put on. If the Spirit of God is helping you put on these new things, then you're going to be healthy, maturing, loving, and growing in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's what you want. That's what I want. I don't want to be a man of falsehood. I don't want to be a man of uncontrolled anger. I want to be a man that's compassionate like Christ. You do too. Let's pray. Father, take these words. Teach us the wisdom of Christ that we might have that metanoia to think like you do. And give us the spirit. Help us, help us drink deeply of these things and make this a reality for us. In Christ's name, amen.